0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome to everyone. Nice to be able to gather like this and to reflect on the teachings of the Buddha. Common Ground is now in its 29th year, believe it or not. We've been around for a long time doing this, and, uh, and what's so amazing really is how simple it is and how hard it is. I don't know if you felt that way, but you would think non-distraction would be something we could do for a few moments in a row, but it's not so easy. But it's good because it's interesting that it's not so easy that should be interesting to us like whoa what is it what is it that set in motion that tendency to be able to to not be able to sustain present moment awareness and so I, I what I was thinking of doing today for and maybe for a month or two is just to give a series of talks and reflections on fear, because I think it has to do with fear. Maybe in this case, a misplaced fear, like fear in our experience. Fear and having an honest and open, um, and and a, a way of being present where there's no intermediary, like my thought about what's happening. So when we're really open, then we don't even bother to explain to ourselves what our experience that I'm having is, because we're already immediately open. So like right now, you know, whether you're sitting at home or you're here at Common Ground, you know, we can open to our our experience. And when we're really open, sensitive, feeling what's here to feel, Do I need to tell myself that I'm sitting at home or I'm sitting at common ground? We don't need that cognitive or that mental interpretation, in a a sense, in a weird sense, me telling myself what my experience is. Same thing, like if I'm touching something, I'm touching the lectern in front of me, You know, and I'm actually touching my papers, my notes, you know, and there's that, you know, there's some (coughs) relatively neutral experience of temperature, smoothness, right, the texture. But I don't need those words. I don't need that simple interpretation. I'm touching my notes to be intimate, to be open, to be present. And if that interpretation does arise in my mind, hey, I'm touching my notes, that actually is the thought being known in the moment. And that's not in any way dismissing the thought, it's just acknowledging this is how it is right now, having the thought, hey, Mark, I'm touching my notes, or whatever. So it's just interesting, you know, because we're not interested in uh, when we sit, if we cultivate a daily sitting practice or go on retreats from time to time, it's not so much about those particular experiences. It's really about how we set in motion a particular lifestyle where we deeply value non-distraction. And it's really important that we have some humility about that because you, you might have already begun this if this instruction we're using this morning is relatively new. Our mind's habit, a very <coughs> deep habit, is because we want to feel safe, but we generally find safety in ways that are ultimately not very safe or tenuous. So what we might do with an instruction like we had during the guided meditation is we think, because that's our basic strategy to feel safe, is we, th- we think, if I think about this enough, if I think about this in the right way, then I'll feel safe. So instead of a more direct exploration of non-distraction, we think about non-distraction. I wonder what non-distraction might mean. And it's like we try out different definitions in our mind. If we're lucky, we get what seems to the mind to be a good enough definition for what non-distraction is. And then the mind clings to its idea, its definition of what non-distraction is. But that's not (laughs) non-distraction, you know. That's some cognitive activity. But I feel good. I feel like I'm a Buddhist who has an idea of what non-distraction is that I'm pretty comfortable with. I'm willing to put it out there, you know. Who's got a better idea of what non-distraction is? My idea is probably the best. (laughs) And we feel safe in a funny way. Like, because I can explain myself, explain my life, explain reality to myself in a way that makes me feel somewhat comfortable. And that can temporarily, in an uneasy way, put doubt to the side, sort of, but not really, because okay? doubt keeps challenging, because there's some part of the mind, I would call it a, a kind of you know, spiritual intuition, that understands what the Buddha said very directly, bluntly, no matter how anybody conceives the truth, it will always be other than that. Because the conception of the way it is, what's up, what's down, what's important, what's not important, however our mind conceives it, no matter what kind of meaning we construct or fabricate for ourselves or for others, that meaning that was fabricated, constructed, is in it. So to cling to it, to cling to some idea, fixed idea, an opinion, a belief is, actually turns out to be the cause for anxiety and uneasiness, is thinking that a conception, a thought, an idea is a a worthy refuge. And that's a difficult spiritual turning when... (laughs) that builds up. It's described in the, in the text in a very poignant way as samvega, that's a Pali phrase, which usually gets translated as spiritual urgency. But it's, it really is the, it arises when what our heart, what our mind has been using for ground, security, safety, no longer works. And then we feel this samvega, we feel he, he, uh, one teacher describes it in three parts, you know, from the tradition, samvega, the spiritual urgency has a quality of being shocked or dismayed, like, I don't have a clue, right? And then there's a a second piece to that, which is uh, almost like a sense of shame about how complacent how i've missed it you know how i've basically lied to myself for such a long time that i've been uh, dishonest with myself and then the the third piece of that spiritual urgency really is relates to how we translate that word urgency right there's a a real movement does anybody know what to do with this human life? <laughs> you know, we're actually willing to be a student, we're willing to listen, we're willing to look around, try out some practices. Like what do we do? And and the more we get a sense of this how it's showed up in our own life, the more we see people we this is how we and it's not a judgment, it's just kind of Seeing our own life and everybody's life in this light of somebody, this person in this moment is clinging, like we see kind of almost get our existential defense. Oh, this person is clinging to this belief. They branded themselves this way, or they positioned themselves this way. They're clinging to that, and that gives them some semblance of safety or whatever. Or this person doesn't have a good defense working for them and they're floundering and they're in moments interested, who knows the way, anybody got a clue? Or kind of scrambling, falling and looking for a handhold, a foothold, like what gives my life some grounding, some meaning? And it can be, you know, we'll see this in ourselves sometimes, right? It's like we invest something that's relatively unimportant with a lot of significance. I've got to find the best potato peeler, you know, and we're searching (laughs) the web. It's like, and somehow getting that thing, getting this taken care of, gives my life some meaning, some purpose that takes care of that existential uneasiness for a while. Or maybe somebody feels like they've, they're have they on a path. But part of being on the path is convincing other people that this is the path, right? Because I feel a lot better about my path when there are other people who are interested in the same path, right? So it's like this. Hey, let me tell you. <laughs> and you see this, of course, in Buddhism too. It's everywhere. It's like... We just feel a lot better if people, you know, get the same potato peeler or read the same books, like the same music, go to the same Buddhist meditation center or whatever, the same style of practice. And remember, this spiritual urgency is an unavoidable and necessary, I call it a turning And it's nice, this is actually a great topic of conversation. I'll just give you an example. Some of you have heard these stories before, but, you know, if we're going to tell each other stories about who we are, it can be, you know, we can put it in majestic terms, the great turning, right? From where we've been an ordinary human being, uh, more or less, who is dependent on our conceptions and the clinging to our ideas, our beliefs, our opinions, our conceptions, to the great turning is seeing how stressful, unsatisfying, and unproductive of real safety all of that is, and leaving it behind. And we leave it behind before we really know what is an appropriate use for a human life, right? Because part of Uncovering a path that has a little bit more trustworthiness to it is letting go of the dependence our mind has on its conceptions. You know, this exists on all levels. So whether you're an activist who you imagine really cares about the world in a deep way, nuanced way, or you're somebody totally into celebrity culture. You know, and like, what is my favorite celebrity doing, and who are they dating, and you know, whatever we fill our lives up, the meaning we fill our lives up, we're talking about the dependence on the meaning, not so much whether your meaning is more appropriate than somebody else's meaning that you're clinging to, right? So that great turning, like I remember, and like I mentioned, some of you may have heard me. of relay this story but I was a pretty serious high school runner, uh, you know, competitive runner in track and cross country and and pretty good for a high schooler and I got injured for the first time really my junior year and not a terrible injury just a little tendonitis but I had to stop running for one or two weeks so not even that long and uh, but it was right in the middle of track season And you know, if you've you've done any sort of serious sports, you do a lot of preliminary work to when all the important games or meets or whatever are gonna happen. So to kind of have to stop that very careful progression is sort of a, a real break in what the mind is clinging to, like the identity of being somebody who's into running and into being good at it and into being successful and all of that identity and all the meaning, like this is who I am. Somebody who works hard, who gets up and runs in the morning, you know, and then goes to school and then goes to practice, you know, and then you do the same thing and then the same thing and the same thing every day of the year. I mean, that kind of attitude. (coughs) And there I was, I couldn't run, Didn't have all that outlet for all that, you know, neurotic energy that high schoolers have, generally, and adults, but... And I became reflective, you know, just as one might in that situation. I was always sort of reflective, even as a kid. And it, you know, the obvious question, oh yeah, this race, this meet is coming up, really wanting to do well, but then, you know, just... And then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. And those summers break, but these races all do in the summer, and then prepping for cross-country, you know, the ongoingness, right? Like So there's this identity, and part of the, the reason the mind clings to the identity is that it's going to lead somewhere, right? Whatever your identity is, getting to the kitchen renovation, getting the promotion, getting to retirement, that, that silly movie with Tom Hanks, getting big. You remember the movie Big? He's <laughs> a little kid. He wanted to get big, and then he got big. And so these are the, the sort of uh, the promise that a lot of our conceptions, our stories have, is that I'll get something. If I win that race or run the mile in that time, then I will have some significance. But if we actually do achieve what we wanted to achieve, there's another thing we want to achieve. That's really what we get. It's not a landing place. Okay, I ran the mile in that time, and now I'm this person. Who ran the mile in that time and now I'm satisfied because that's what I wanted. I wanted to become and it's all about the idea. It isn't actually about running the mile in a particular time. It's about the conception of being the person who can run that fast, who's that special, right? And it might be about academics, it might be about your social life, it could be about it could be even about being a bad person. Like I'm I'm not just an ordinarily bad person. I'm an especially bad person, you know? Not like those sort of other bad people, but a cool bad person, or whatever. Because any conception will do. Because it's not even the conception as much as the way the mind uses us as a co- kind of ground to create a temporary but uneasy sense of safety, meaning ground to cling to. And in my mind, you know, even in those few days, you know, I, it started to expand beyond athletics and into getting good grades and getting into good college and, you know, being popular and all those sort of things that the mind does. And it was a real turning point. It, it kind of, for, for me, just in terms of my personality, it... Um, It interrupted what, up until that point, had been a mostly unquestioned belief in sort of personal progress, like that becoming energy, success, that that's what it was all about. Because all of a sudden, for the first time, I had a pretty clear sense of doubt that this doesn't go anywhere. And this is what we mean by the insight into samsara. Maybe you've heard that word. They've even named perfumes. It's so ironic that there are perfumes and I think some other products that are named samsara, which the the literal definition of samsara, cycles of suffering. But we like our samsara. We like our cycles of suffering, our endless conceiving. And this next example is a perfect, uh, perfect sort of uh, story about how that happened. So this is a couple years later, end of my freshman year in college. I, I told this recently, I hope it wasn't in the Sunday morning group, but for whatever reason I was sitting, uh, I had a couple days after the semester, the spring semester of my first year of college ended. I went to school on the East Coast and uh, waiting a few days to fly back to Minneapolis where my folks lived. And, uh, and no friends around to fill up the, sc- uh, the day and all the work was done, the exams were over. And so all I could do was sense and feel what was left over from the crazy first year of college, which was a sense of trying so hard in so many ways, you know, to be a good runner, to be a good student, to be popular and make friends and all that kind of stuff. And it felt really unpleasant, just like what was left from trying so hard. And it was was just the kind of window into the uh, bottomless neediness to need that kind of success with grades, with sports, with... Social life and, uh, and and this is a much deeper taste of uh, sam Vega this spiritual urgency remember that has these three parts of uh, like shock and a sense of alienation like like we see part of our conditioning and it's like we're shocked because it seems like a big disconnect like how can that help? It's not helping. And, uh, and that sense of being chastened or discouraged, like how deluded you know, chasing that is, chasing those promises, like if I do this, then things will be fine because it hasn't proved to be true. And that last part is like a more authentic search and humility. But I I kind of chewed on that experience for many weeks, maybe even a couple months through my summer vacation. wasn't really that social, just working a lot of jobs to earn money to help pay for college. and, uh, And I couldn't figure out a way out of using these desires to achieve to have some sense of significance and safety, kind of in a deeper sense. All I could like as I got closer to coming back to school that next fall, all I could conceive of was to try harder at fitting in, doing well, being successful, joining the rat race again, you know. Like, oh, that's all I, that is the only way I could see to kind of take care of that existential uneasiness in my heart. And then the, the next story around this is, uh, again, a few more years later, maybe four years later, I was probably 24, so about 40 years ago, <clears throat> right when I started, right before I started meditating pretty seriously, I had been obsessed with death. <laughs> this, is, this is where this reflectiveness takes, like, now I had a more, more of that authentic samvega, that spiritual urgency, but not so much of the pasada, which is often like in the early Buddhist teaching, is a term that's related to samvega, the spiritual urgency, is the pasada, supreme or, uh, not supreme, but sublime confidence. So it's just a beginning, not of any sort of transforming insight, maybe, I mean, depends what you mean by that, but, a real sense of what might be possible, a real intuition that there's something to do with this human life. Except, oh boy, what a setup. Because otherwise, with only Samvega, the mind can get really nihilistic. Because part of the way to understand Samvega is to see the meaningless, not so much of life, but the meaningless of my heart's approach to living, the way my mind conceives of what I should be doing with this human life. And just to see, you know how we get that reflectiveness, like you get up, you go to work, you spend all the money you earn, then you get up, or whatever your particular version of that is, you get involved in a relationship, it lasts for a while, you break up, everything hurts, Say never again, fall in love, you get it? So this is like the samsara, is like doing the same thing we've done before, not exactly, but basic pattern is the same, getting the same results we've gotten before, not really able to get out of the box, so we do the same thing we did before and get the similar results we've gotten, and we keep doing that. And it might look a little different, you know, when I was younger, I was really into this, and then in my thirties, I was really into that. But it's always like the promise, whatever it is, I'm gonna learn another language, I'm gonna learn to play tennis, I'm gonna play a musical instrument, (coughs) I'm gonna find a good partner, I'm gonna have kids, I'm gonna figure out how to pay for school or whatever it might be. But it's the same pattern of if this, if I get this, if I resolve this, then this heart will be at ease. Then I'll be able to really rest. And then you know what? On our deathbed, that's what we'll be thinking. Except we won't be able to conceive of more of this because we can maybe see the writing on the wall. I don't think I'm going to be living long. So what do we we conceive of another life? Being reborn somewhere. If only I could be reborn. If only I could do this again. But do it right. But the thing is, we don't have another way yet. This is where the pasada comes. Like some sense that I don't know much but I know what isn't helping, like what doesn't work. And this third experience that I wanna share um, really flowed out of this kind of, I think, pretty natural obsession with death. You know, there I was, 24, year and a half or so out of college, having just had a big breakup of someone I had been dating for uh, three or four years. You know, pretty, my first real serious relationship we had even looked together a little bit. And uh, and it just, the timing was perfect because I had a lot of romantic ideas after college. Oh, I'll get a PhD in economics and I'll go work for the United Nations and I'll make this world a better place. Not that that's a bad thing to do. <laughs> but all of a sudden, that kind of stuff wasn't making so much sense to me. And... Uh, and I really didn't know what to do, and then it seemed like, well, understanding what death is might give me some direction, right? And uh, and uh, what I came upon from some really powerful books is that so much of what people do in their lives, whether it's raising kids or being a successful artist or a successful business person, is in one or another way a way of avoiding the uneasiness of our mortality. It's like, oh, this is the animating force of so much in life is staying busy, trying to be a sent, have a sense of significance as a counterweight to the yucky feeling of my mortality, of knowing that I'm born, I live, and then I die. And that's an unpleasant existential feeling. So let me do something about that. You know, I'll become somebody important, or I'll do something of significance. And death, take that. You know, I built a shed in my backyard. You know, or I—I've got three kids. I don't, but I've got kids. Take that, or whatever. And it's not. There's nothing wrong with building sheds in our backyard or raising kids, or. But to think that it. Addresses the underlying insecurity or vulnerability of our human condition is truthfully a setup. And that investigation into death led to this, uh, in a way, it was my first actual meditation. Um, and I had read a book about a very famous Indian man, uh, Ramana Maharshi, who died like 1950, I think, right around there. And he made quite an important um, splash in sort of spiritual circles, not just in India, but um, also in the West. And uh, one thing he did when he was a teenager, like a young teenager, is he got interested in death. And I had been reading this book about him and this, this place in his life where he just, as a 14-year-old, I think, or maybe 13, he just lay down on the ground and imagined dying. And I was really intrigued by that. So I said, I'll do that. I can do that. I like lying down. <laughs> and, you know, I had kind of a philosophical bent. And I, you know, and there was a little bit of a description of what he did. And, and I had also the setup that that was a significant event in his life. So I thought, okay, maybe this will work for me. So I did that. And I, you know, I was really vividly imagining like everything's done. No more life to live no more of this, no more of that, you know, just kind of using my imagination. And I got into this pretty still meditative place, you know, empty of a lot of activity. And, uh, and you know, but there is some uh, superficial, idealistic sense that, you know, somebody should be sad about losing their life, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I was, I was feeling really still, and in that just that quiet meditative space, this wisdom just sort of showed up. Who is this a problem for? Not in words, but just an understanding. This sort of having lost something, having let go of something. Who is that a problem for? I didn't understand. The, um, I didn't understand what happened in that moment, but it was a real powerful moment just like a, a seismic shift in understanding or the way my mind part related to my life experience. And I was really disoriented for a while. Um, and, and I don't need to have an idea or a ex- explanation of what that moment was, because what's always important about insights is like, who do we become? going forward, like how does life change going forward, and, but for me, like the way I would describe it is that term kasada, which is that serene confidence, because that was the ongoing flavor of whatever that shift in understanding was, the ongoingness of it, the flavor that was left over in the mind was, it's okay. And in in that sense of it's okay, death is okay, the craziness of human existence is okay, but it's not okay because I'm a good runner or because I have the answer. It's okay for no good reason. (laughs) And that's kind of the inexplicable uh, nature of spiritual insight It doesn't resolve the very real human suffering and the very real human doubt and confusion and meanness of so much of our conditioning, you know, we're basically have animal conditioning and you see that getting played out whenever power is involved, right? Power doing what power wants to do. Those people with less power dealing with the fact of having less power and those with power doing what they want to do, to lock in their power, to have more power, and all the oppression, all the injustice, and all the suffering that comes from that. And all that is just the cumulative expression of what's in our hearts. It's not like the evil ones are out there. <clears throat> it's the conditioning that's right here. So what I... Would encourage us to do as we take this time in the next uh, several weeks to look at fear is to not just dismiss fear as entirely unnecessary or unwholesome but to really get curious how might like when you have some fear some anxiety some uneasiness how might this fear be useful converted used in a way that's helpful And how might this fear, this uneasiness be unhelpful, be misused, misapplied? Because, you know, when we're walking close to a ledge, (laughs) it's appropriate to have that heightened attention. Like, I should be careful. I could easily slip and fall, and that wouldn't be good. Or, I'm in this conversation with this person, and we often misunderstand each other and difficulty comes from that, that affects my well-being and this other person's well-being. Maybe it's appropriate to have some concern, some fear here. Like, I don't wanna cause harm for myself or another. So I'm gonna be really attentive. And it's the same thing around our habits, where we're gonna get swept away by our next interest, the next potato peeler. Or the next thing you want, the next renovation at home, the next relationship, or whatever it might be, <clears throat> just to, like have an appropriate fear. Oh, this life could be continuously consumed by this desire, this attachment to desire, and then this attachment to the next desire, and this attachment to the next interest, and the next obsession. And then, at some point, I'll be on my deathbed, and I'll be, you know, if I'm fortunate, I'll have a few minutes, moments, days, months to look back and go, did I really live the life that could have been lived? That would have been, like, for example, really helpful when someone like myself is on my deathbed. That would be really useful in helping me hold, meet this experience that's happening right now, the letting go of life. And so we can use those, like it may not be your own death, it may be the death of a loved one. Like some of, I know people say this to me, people who have kids, it's like imagining the death or something bad happening to one of their kids, it's just not something their heart can open to. Even though parents, and this is true for any of us with loved ones, bad stuff happens to people we love, and we can't control that. doesn't mean we should give up taking care of those we love, but we do that care knowing that we're not completely in charge of bad stuff happening. And when and if that happens, will this mind, this heart have the capacity to show up? to be, to model being at ease doing what can be done not amplifying the difficulty by our own inability to be intimate present and responsive same with our wider world which is from my point of view maybe it's always messy I'm really, I hold out that possibility even though I want to think. It's kind of a way of feeling special again, you know. Now, this time in human history, this is an s- especially bad time, you know. Yeah, really? Do we know that, to be certain? No, we don't, I don't think. I mean, come on. I mean, I think back just, I, I was in alive during the McCarthy era, but that wasn't that long ago let alone the time of uh, lynchings in the South and in Duluth or World War II when six million Jews and so many other groups were slaughtered. So there are a lot of bad times. And Maybe it isn't about, like, getting through this bad time as much as it is what do we, uh, how do we use this this more honest and clear perception of the human situation, this particular human situation? Is there a refuge for this heart when it's like this? And... Like this means both our world situation and our, you know, intra-psychic situation the way our own heart and mind is. What is the way out? What is the way to be human? And, you know, and uh, bringing it back, just ending with this sit we did today, this practice of non-distraction, because a lot of the... The activity of samsara, which is the avoidance, is distraction. Like, that's how we deal with our human situation, is we fill our mind with some activity so we don't really have to feel what it feels like to be present, to be intimate with what's moving. And what's really moving is that initial shock of, of uh, Sam vega, that initial dismay like, and that kind of a humiliation like how so much of what I've done with my life, like I'm just thinking, how many hours of watching movies, TV, have been maybe entertaining, but completely not onward leading to anything that has any real value, right? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there haven't been some books, movies, TV shows that have some value. I'm just saying that in my own case, there's been so much time of my life spent with entertainments that I'm, I have a lot of confidence in saying didn't, isn't making any real difference. It was just a way of avoiding feeling what it would feel like to not be involved with entertainment. And where does that lead? Well, I know in my own experience it leads to a greater dependence on more entertainment. Right? That addiction just increases like... And, and when we say it out loud, like, OK, here's my strategy, ready? Best way to be a human being? Don't be there. Get really good entertainments get absorbed in your books, your movies, your conversations, your gossip. See if you can ride that all the way to the end. And it's like, if we say that out loud, we realize, oh, that can't be the way. That cannot be the way. But we do, and it's not just our movies and books, and it's also vacations, you know, the special vacation, or even hobbies to some degree. If hobbies are used to kind of get us close great I just started doing wordle I don't know I'm sure some of you do wordle it seems like everyone's doing wordle it's a puzzle if you don't know that now the New York Times just bought it from the guy who developed it and I think you can get it for free I, I seem to be able to get it for free and uh, online every day and you're just looking for a word five letters you know and however long it takes you <laughs> but where does that lead? You know, maybe it's a little good for our brains to keep it active. I kind of like doing it. It's definitely some pleasure in solving problems. Our brains like to solve problems. But it really begs the question, what else might I be doing with that 15 minutes or whatever it is? What else could I do? Now, a lot of us will get tight about that because it will trigger this striving energy, you know, But that can't be the way either. That's just more, instead of a wordle, you're going to become a good Buddhist. It's probably an even more effective way to suffer. (laughs) If you're going to stride, probably wordle is a better way. (laughs) Because at least we know it's just for fun. You know, it's like people who play their tennis or their sport, you know, and they can get really serious. But at least they get reminded at some point, it's just a game. You know, we're just hitting a ball around But when we're trying to be a good Buddhist, a good meditator, we can get really serious. That self-importance can get really strong. So we'll come back to this next Sunday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.